have any helpful advice or experience with training very old populations like people in their 80s and 90s? Yeah, and we do that all the time. Uh, all of us will, by the time we've been doing this a couple of years, have had some 80-year-old clients, 85, maybe even 90-year-old clients. We've got people that specialize in that. And what you do is, is you apply the same principles to them that get applied to you. You apply stress to them from which they can recover. Right? Yeah. You provide the tools for recovery. You have to feed them correctly. Old people need better quality protein than, than young people do. More of it since they don't react as well to its absorption as far as muscle mass is concerned. And then when they adapt to it, you select another stress that will cause them to adapt and the process <coughs> begins again. Have you been able this to... This is what's wrong with most people's approach to training geriatric populations. Mm -hmm. They don't apply that simple formula. Stress, recovery, adaptation. That's what makes people stronger. That's what makes people better anytime they get better. A stress is applied. They recover from the stress. They adapt to the stress. Then another stress is applied that causes the adaptation to accumulate. So with old people, what you have to do is you have to figure out a way to stress them without killing them, right? Yeah. Or without injuring them, without applying a stress from which they can't recover. So it's a generally an incrementally lower stress, starts off lighter, you know, the jumps aren't as big, the frequency isn't as high. Better attention has to be paid to feeding them protein because old people lose their appetites and won't eat right. Right? So you just back it off. But the the slope of the line still has to be positive, doesn't it? Yeah. And those kind of questions depend in time. Because by the time somebody gets to be 85 years old, they've got a special set of problems, don't they? None of them are going to be the same. None of them are going to start at the same level. There's not really any general uh, place where you start it. Now, you're going to have to have some tools that you might not need to use for a 19-year-old kids. Like if you're going to be training old people, you probably need a leg press. Because they're going to have to start on a leg press, probably. Right? Because you can load a leg press to a, to a squat-like range of motion for the hips and legs that's lighter than body weight. Right? So you need the right tools. You're going to have to have 15-pound <coughs> bars. But once we solve the tool problem, and once we understand that probably twice a week is better than three days a week, then the principles are the same. Find out where they are now and go up a little bit next time. Have you been able to, uh, people in like, uh, with really uh, advanced like sarcopenia, have you been able to, uh, let's say, uh, rebuild enough muscle mass so they could gain balance? It, it, once they lose that much muscle mass, they lose a lot of the Golgi tendon organs and other things in the muscles. I don't know that there's actually any such thing as a Golgi tendon organ. Uh, but, you know, if... <coughs> Yeah, they build muscle mass back, not at the not at the rate that a younger person would build it, but yeah, they we've had 
certainly had good results. You've got the new book, right? Yeah. Do that. Works pretty well. I just wonder if you had any other stuff that wasn't in the book or no. wasn't on. No, we're not line. keeping any secrets. <laughs> that wouldn't be productive. No. Video on Gus? Yeah. So yeah, you work with them just like you work with everybody else. You just have to. That is a special uh, population that you have to learn how to work with. And the best way to do it is to get an old client and train them. Be careful. <laughs> But push them. I got you. Push them slowly, but push them in that direction. Okay. Yes, sir. Right. Is there anywhere where you folks have made inroads in working with physical therapy? The reason I ask this is, as Tom astutely pointed out, the one of the biggest problems I have is just frailty in most of my patients, particularly right. in the hospital setting. What's your specialty? Uh, hospitalist internal medicine. Okay. Uh. Uh, we don't usually have good results working with physical therapists. And now we've got physical therapists in our organization, but uh, the physical therapists that, that, are, that are associated with us are lifters. If, it's been my experience that if the physical therapist you're trying to work with is not a lifter, they're not gonna understand how this works. If you got a physical therapist that's a runner or a cyclist, they have no idea what the hell we're talking about here. And they're not interested in knowing either. They think they're doing this right. right? But, and the problem with that is that they don't typically operate on the stress recovery adaptation paradigm the way we do. And I think that most of them have completely lost sight of that, of that process and how that process applies to their practice because that's not taught in their program. Their curriculum doesn't involve that kind of thing. They're taught anatomy and origin and insertion and innervation and this is how we isolate the piriformis and this is how we isolate the supraspinatus from the infraspinatus and all of that kind of, all that kind of stuff. They like to deal with the minutia and approach <coughs> things from a minutia standpoint, when things function as systems, right? How many of you guys have had a shoulder injury? And what did the physical therapist do? Did any of them have you press? They all had you do this, didn't they? Like this is the function <laughs> of the uh, rotator cuff. Like this is the function of the rotator cuff which is essentially this, <laughs> isn't it? All right, what's the rotator cuff complex do? Does it externally rotate the humerus or does it stabilize the shoulder? How did it evolve? Let's look at it from an evolutionary standpoint. Did early primates do this and thus evolve the infraspinatus and the supraspinatus? Do horses have an infraspinatus and a supraspinatus? Does it externally rotate anything? What does all that shit do? It stabilizes the shoulder. So if you do things that require the shoulder to be stable, what are you doing? You're working all of the shit that stabilizes the shoulder. Well, presses, chins, lap pulls, that sort of thing. Maybe even in some cases bench presses. 
but they don't approach it like that, do they? They want to isolate all the little components of the anatomy, analyze them separately, work them separately, and with, you know, when they tell you to do this, that's basically this, isn't it? And it doesn't work very well. As every one of you that have been to <coughs> an outpatient physical therapist learned, it was a waste of time, wasn't it? Did anybody have any experience other than that outpatient physical therapy is a waste of time? Is anybody helped by outpatient physical therapy? I was made worse. <laughs> yeah, that happens. That happens more frequently. That if you got, we go so far as to say that if you get better at outpatient physical therapy, well, you just healed up. You just healed up. You were going to do that anyway, right? And it's just a whole lot cheaper to do it without the physical therapist. I wish they'd catch up. They could do a lot of good if they would rethink their paradigm, but they're just not in a position to do that right now. You know, I think a lot of them may see a problem, but it, you know, it can be a lucrative practice. We run a whole bunch of people through there, five modalities, $45 a modality, Bill insurance. What happens when insurance ro runs out? Well, price goes down. I'm not impressed with them. I'm really not. And I don't know what, uh, in terms of reaching out to them, we can't. They're not going to listen to us. They're not going to listen to us. They're not interested in listening to us. They've already gone to school. <coughs> I don't have a PhD. I don't even have a DPT. What do I know? Not a goddamn thing. So they're just going to continue to, you know, <laughs> do that thing. Okay. So most collegiate educational programs for people interested in phys ed are fairly useless. Do you feel that there are any programs that are actually beneficial to help you with the career goal of being a strength coach? Well, I've, you know, written a couple articles about this and we talk about this all the time and so uh, I'll just recap it for you uh, what I think uh, you need to do to to have an educational background that will benefit you as a practicing strength coach is immediately eliminate any idea that you might have of getting an exercise physiology degree I don't want to make, waste money on an exercise. It's a it's waste a of money. Degree. It's a complete yeah. waste of money. What I think you need to do is obtain a hard science degree. That doesn't have to be a nuclear physics degree, okay? But it needs to have, uh, it needs to be a science degree where you have math past college algebra, mm -hmm. all right? There needs to be laboratory science in it. So like a biology degree. Biology degree works mm -hmm. just fine even though most biology degrees don't take you past college algebra. Mm -hmm. It functions as a science degree. Physics, chemistry, math, you know, if you do the right electives, geology, biology, these kinds of sciences, mm -hmm. you know. And then you are in a position to teach yourself more effectively the things you need to know. You need a command of anatomy. You need to, need to know anatomy. You need to study anatomy. You need to study physiology. 
you need to get to where you can read Brooks and Fahey and understand it. And then you need to start training people yourself. First thing you need to do is train you. You need to be a lifter. You cannot consider yourself qualified to take somebody through a linear novice progression unless you've done it yourself. You don't have the experience. You won't be able to answer their questions if you've not answered your questions for yourself in the same context, right? So you, ha and you need to be a competitor. You need to go to a meet or two or 10 or 15. You need, your training needs to matter to you, mm -hmm. right? Then you need to train people. You need to train lots and lots and lots of people and solve lots and lots of problems, right? Yep. And if you do it like that, and I mean training the general public, Accountants, real estate salesmen, you know, the general public, not gifted athletes. Then you'll know enough about this to, to be able to call yourself a, an effective coach. You know, and you'll know if you're effective because the people you're training are getting stronger. Arithmetic, right? So that's the way I would prepare you. Now, in contrast, what happens at D1 and college sports levels with strength and conditioning? I don't know. Who do they deal with? With college athletes. Specimens. And who are college athletes? Genetic the, freaks. Yeah, they're the elite athletes. They're elite athletes yeah. with big verticals that learn things quickly with their eyes. Right? Does a college strength and conditioning coach, pro-level strength and conditioning coach, need to know how to make somebody strong? Yes. They're already yeah. strong. They, they wouldn't be on the team if they, they were strong. They need to keep them safe so they can do their actual sport. The way you keep them safe uh -huh. is to go in the office and play free sale on the, <laughs> on the computer. Because anything you do out on the floor has the chance of hurting that guy, right? This, is, this more applies to... to pro-level stuff, mm -hmm. right? But D1 college, look, you guys have all seen this D1 college shit on YouTube, right? You've looked at college programs. You've looked at the official strength and conditioning department videos that have been put out on various D1 college football teams. Haven't you? You guys seen that, right? What, what's your impression? Well, I, you know, you just stumble onto it. What's, what's your impression of it? Anybody favorably impressed by the methods that you see? All the screaming and yelling and cheerleading and pep rally and... and uh, half squats. Half squats and spotted half squats and BOSU ball shit and functional training, all that stuff. How do you get away with that? How do you get away with doing stuff that we all know doesn't work at the D1 college level? Because it's entertaining. Well, if you take, no, no, look. If you recruit, if your recruiter puts an 18-year-old kid in front of you, an 18-year-old kid that weighs 215 pounds with a 36-inch vertical jump, mm 
and he stays in your program till he's 22. What is it going to look like you did? Got him stronger. Whether you yeah, did yeah. a goddamn thing, yeah. what is it going to look like happened? What's he going to do? Well, he's going to grow. Yeah. He's 18. He's explosive. He's got a 36-inch vertical jump. You're going to have him play sports. Whether you know how to teach him to how to squat, deadlift, press, do the Olympic lifts or not, he's going to make some improvement because he went from 18 to 22. Right? Mm -hmm. He'll gain some weight. He's going to, if you work him hard on the field, he's going to get stronger. Now, was that uh, work uh, such that he acquired his potential for strength and conditioning during that period of time? No. No. But did he improve? Yeah. Does it look like then that you know what you're doing? Mm -hmm. Do you? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Probably Maybe not. not. <laughs> yeah. If what you're doing is what we see on these ridiculous videos, then no, you don't know what the hell you're doing. But you don't have to know what you're doing because it looks like you know what you're doing. Right? So uh, I think that the, the, the best strength coaches in the country are always going to be found uh, someplace besides where People deal with freak athletes because freak athletes are freak athletes already. I'm more concerned about what you can do for a 35-year-old guy that has no athletic background at all that is interested in getting stronger and what you can do for him over three years. That indicates to me much more accurately what your ability as a coach is. Right? And how do you learn to work with those people? By working with Well, people. you get, you know, your thinking skills in order, and you get your background all sorted out, and you get some experience under the bar yourself, and then you get some experience coaching these people, and you grow as a coach. But let me assure you that that is not where most D1 strength and conditioning coaches come from. That type of preparation is not how they get where they are. So Nassim Taleb, who wrote the foreword to Sullivan's book, was recently in Ireland, and he spoke rather enthusiastically how you were going to help him take his uh, deadlift up to 500 pounds. Uh, you guys share. Hey, he's a big guy. He can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you guys share a lot of anti uh, bullshit, anti uh, intellectual bullshittery viewpoints. Can you? We have an interesting conversations. <laughs> how did you guys meet? And any interesting anecdotes? I reached out to him reaching out being what you do these days instead of calling people you reach out <laughs> I reached out on you know social media I reached out to him and uh, uh, he and I were friendly you know he's a good guy he's terribly god almighty interesting guy to be around he interested in a lot of the same stuff I am but the guys you know he's that guy's bright you know I'm I'm of above average intelligence, but I'm not, this guy's, you know, I'm not that smart. I am articulate. Many people in, uh, mistake being articulate for being intelligent. That's not the same thing. Uh, 
I thought I am able to talk good. <laughs> but he's a real intelligent guy. Yeah. And he's a lot of fun to hang around with. Okay. Uh, quick second question. Uh, I'm not even a two-plate squat, and I'm having trouble finding jeans. Do you have any recommended brands, or do you need to start drinking soy milk or something? Well, jeans come from your parents. <laughs> oh, sorry. Jeans <laughs> as in pants. <laughs> you know, you, you're not able to change. Yeah. <laughs> And 23 and I meant trousers. Oh, oh your trousers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see. Uh, I wear Carhartt B11s. They last a long time. Uh, you can't wear holes in them. The seat of them generally doesn't rip out. You know. And uh, I just get them online. Okay. Once you know what size you wear, you just order clothes online. There's no point shopping for for things like that in the store. The store you go to won't have them. They'll be out. The salesperson will, you know, come up to you and say, can I help you? And you say, yeah, I'm looking for a pair of Carhartt uh, B11s in this CMOS color. That's what I like. I need a 36, 32. And they say, well, we're out of that. We can order it for you. Save the time for training. And I say, I can order it for me. <laughs> so then you've wasted, you know, whatever time and gas it took to go. Just get them online. But I like the B11. Anybody else got any pants recommendations? Levi Athletic Fit. I'm Pretty right. good, yeah. 541s? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got them. There you go. Levi's? Yeah. 541 is the name of those? Mm, How much it. are those? $80, $90. Designer brand, probably. Yeah. That's not stylish at all. Yeah, everybody looks good when they do that. <laughs> Duluth Training Company also makes work pants and jeans that are designed for manual laborers. So or shorts. Uh, Who all have big asses and legs, <laughs> right? They, they, they're what I wear. Sweatpants. Duluth Trading Company. You've seen their catalogs around. I bought a pair of their fire hose pants one time. Yeah, they're, they're like a Carhartt knockoff. Yeah. You look good in some Lululemon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. There's a yeah. company called Barbell Apparel that makes jeans for uh, men and women who lift. Okay. Special people. Barbell Apparel? Well, again, how much are the damn things? They're fairly, they're fairly pricey. I think they're like a hundred bucks or a hundred bucks. I think it's something like that. Yeah, it's around there. Carhartts are thirty-eight ninety-five. What a deal! Which is too much money, but I mean, what are you going to do? You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's too much money, but I don't know what else to do. I'm not going to buy Levi's. I hadn't worn Levi's since I was a kid. I just don't like the way they fit. I used to wear Wranglers, and then they changed their sizing up. Everybody's always changing their sizing up. You notice these new shirts, new T-shirts, the ones with the skinny labels in the back? They kind of feel, had a silky feel, even though they're cotton. Those XLs are really L's, aren't they? Yeah. Everybody notice that? Yeah. Everybody notice that? You have to buy 2X for the damn thing fits. And this just happened over the last year. 
you know, our T-shirt inventory, hell, we had to start stocking two X's. <laughs> or one X used to fit just fine. European sizing. Is that what the deal is? <laughs> I think so. They nice went to European I thought California sizing. <laughs> <laughs> no, same thing. 